Friends, let me pray before I begin. Dear God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself, that you have spoken, that we can know who you are and what you've done through your word. And we pray as we think about that this morning, that you'll open our hearts and minds to it. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the things I observed during the COVID pandemic was a sense of people looking back to the past, the past that had been disrupted by the pandemic. And I wonder if you were reflecting on the past, I wonder if there would be any particular days that would stick in your memory. Sometimes we can just long for the days that seemed simpler or better or even happier. A distant relative of mine died in 1805. His death was well known because at the time he was commanding an English fleet during a decisive battle. He died from a sniper's bullet, but not before victory was won at the Battle of Trafalgar. There's even a statue in his honour standing tall in Trafalgar Square, London. But I doubt that many of us will remember Horatio Nelson's death in October this year. Yet today we gather to remember another man's death. Also well known, because it's not just us that remember, but millions of people around the world are doing exactly the same on this day. And I've always found it intriguing ever since I was a child Intriguing to think how this day, a day when we're remembering someone dying, is actually called Good Friday. And for us now, it's a death that none of us personally experienced, unless there's some people here that have been doing some time travelling that we don't know about. But here we are. So I suggest today is an opportunity to ponder the reason Christians the reason Christians all over the world still remember the death of Jesus some 2,000 years after it occurred. So I suggest that uh, the answer may lie in revisiting that first Good Friday. So come with me on a journey, a journey with no travel restrictions and no visas necessary. And as we travel back, we find ourselves in Jerusalem, during a special Jewish festival. We arrive somewhere around about AD 33 or thereabouts on the eve of the festival called the Passover, which recalled the rescue of the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians. If you walk around the streets, there's like an air of expectation as the city overflows during the annual religious festival. But in the midst of all that, there's another scene playing out in the background. For an itinerant preacher from Galilee named Jesus is arrested. His words of authority and miraculous deeds have provoked the religious leaders. And their response has been to plot his death. Not what you'd expect from religious leaders. And as you come to this period of time 2,000 years ago, 
it would appear that the religious leaders have succeeded in their plot. As you may have noticed in the bulletin, um, I've mentioned that many years ago I was an avid listener to an ABC radio program, TGIF. Well, I want to suggest today we rename that phrase, which is still used in many ways, TGIGF. Thank God it's Good Friday. Otherwise, why would we want to keep remembering the death of one particular man. At the time, he was just one of many that was crucified. Why do we remember this person? Well, let's check out some of the facts from that record by Dr Luke in Luke chapter 23. We read only a portion of it, but we'll think about some of the other things as well. After Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's taken away and tried before a Jewish court. Not really a legal thing to do, not even for the Jews in their way they did things. It was hastily convened and the charge really was blasphemy. But of course that was no good for the Romans, who were the rulers. So they then take Jesus to a Roman court, to the Roman authorities. And as a result, Jesus is exchanged for a convicted criminal. He becomes a substitute for the murderer Barabbas. Let me read the way in which that all unfolded. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, I did not find him guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to me. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I'll therefore punish him and release him. But this verdict wasn't what the religious leaders had hoped for. So the crowd pressure mounts and we read, and they all cried out together, Away with this man! Release to us Barabbas! He was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection that started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! And even after another two unsuccessful attempts by Pilate to change the mob's view, he gives in. Because he was in a slightly precarious state. And he was really unwillingly acting to release an innocent man. And he chooses to release an innocent man in order to keep the peace. You see, Pilate didn't want to provide anyone with another cause, another excuse to complain to Rome about his administration. Today, of course, we expect court trials to be fair, delivering a verdict beyond reasonable doubt. We also have a system of appeals in place 
so justice can be pursued even to the highest court in the land. Perhaps we may still disagree with the final verdict, but we have a proper judicial system. But in Jesus' case, his innocence isn't protected by the courts or ruling authorities. So he doesn't experience justice. Rather, we see him suffering the injustice of a nasty criminal walking free while the innocent one is condemned. His fate sealed, death by crucifixion, a cruel, agonising way to die. So why do we still remember his death? Why do we call this day Good Friday? We gain a sense of that why as we understand the exchange and the meaning of the exchange between Jesus and Barabbas. And the significance is brought out on a number of occasions where Barabbas's character, his character flaws, are on view. In verses 19 and 25 of this same chapter. But we can't miss how Jesus, the innocent man, will die instead of a man already convicted of insurrection and murder as we look at the character flaws of Barabbas. The righteous man, Jesus, is to die in the place of Barabbas, the unrighteous man. Seems to me that's an unbelievable exchange. But the Good Friday story doesn't end just there. Because it's not just a story about a 2,000-year-old cold case that might capture a TV program. It's much, much more. For Jesus just doesn't take the place of Barabbas alone when he dies on the cross. He also takes our place. He's our substitute. And how is it possible for Jesus to do that? Well, Jesus isn't some powerless preacher from the back blocks of Galilee, the northern part of Israel. Rather, he's a popular personality whose fame has spread far and wide throughout the whole country and beyond. He's not some TV celebrity sporting a wonderful personality, a handsome face, along with amazing survivor and culinary skills. Jesus, in fact, demonstrates how he's able to do what we cannot do. And as you read the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, we find that with a word he heals the critically ill, even at a distance, gives sight to the blind, enables the paralysed to walk again, things only attributed to God. We see him removing the self-isolating evil from people whose lives have been held captive, restoring them as normal human beings again. And he even brings back a man who'd been dead for four days. With such incredible power, Jesus can't simply be human, as if that is all that defined who he is. Rather, in biblical terms, he's God in the flesh. God come to earth. So you see, 
with one snap of his fingers, Jesus could have walked away from Pilate, the Roman guards and the Jewish leaders. How could they have ever imagined they really controlled the one whose authoritative word heals, heals disease? Or the one whose voice calms the turbulent waters? Or the one who overpowers dehumanising evil wreaking havoc in people's lives? So why doesn't Jesus escape the humiliating and excruciating pain of death by crucifixion when he possesses such incredible power? Well, the reason certainly wasn't so people could say, oh, what a pity, a life with so much promise cut down in his prime. Think of all that he could have achieved, all the good he could have done. No. But we gain a glimpse of the why by reflecting on the charge sheet which is put on the sign nailed on the cross in three languages, stating this is the king of the Jews. With such irony, a sign aimed at really mocking Jesus actually reveals a truth, a truth even bigger than what the sign says. Because the crucified Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, he's the king of the world. And we gain a glimpse of the why when we hear the taunting words of the jeering crowds who said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. But the why becomes even clearer as we eavesdrop on the conversation between Jesus and the criminals that were crucified on either side. One of them says, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebukes him, saying, Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, we are being punished justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And finally, you can't miss the why of Jesus staying on the cross when as recorded by another eyewitness, John, as he records Jesus saying, it is finished. And those words of Jesus are intensified as three hours of darkness descends on the land. It recalls what happened when God was rescuing an enslaved Israel from Egypt. And as well we read that the temple curtain was torn in two, symbolising access into God's presence was available for everyone because of Jesus' death. Friends, all these glimpses show Jesus willingly endured the tragedy and terror of the cross to rescue us, to save you and me. Yet why was such drastic action required by Jesus? The action which resulted in a humiliating 
excruciating death by Roman crucifixion. Because it was God's plan. A plan promised by the prophet Isaiah. Let me say again that verse that came in by the prophet's hand some 700 years before Jesus. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Isaiah was pointing out that our human condition is naturally rebellious. And we know that, don't we? Wherever we turn, we find people disobeying laws or regulations, isn't it? I'm amazed at how many people pass by me at great speeds coming up and down Macquarie Pass. <laughs> Wherever we turn, we see it, don't we? And the Bible calls that innate attitude of the heart sin, iniquity, as Isaiah said. It basically means ignoring God and his word. It's ignoring living the way that our creator has made us to live. And as a result, harm follows. See, deep down, we don't really want anyone to rule over us. And then we fool ourselves that we can really be in charge. I was teaching in a school in my younger years where a member of staff was retiring early. His wife had died and he married a younger woman and he was going off to England. He wouldn't have anything to do with any discussions about God. He felt he was fit, well, in charge of his destiny. A week later, he was run over by a London bus and sent shockwaves throughout the whole high school. See, our default position is we try to keep God at arm's length. We think we can self-manage our own lives. But as we ponder our world, it's blatantly obvious we can't control our destiny, let alone our immediate future. We can't snap our fingers and change the weather to being warm, as I'd love to do in this cold environment of Robinson. <laughs> Friends, the real problem is that God is the rightful ruler of our world, irrespective of what we imagine to be true. And we're accountable to him. As creator, he is the moral judge of the universe. Our sin convicts us. We are guilty, standing under God's righteous judgment. And so as Jesus hangs on the cross, he hangs on the cross to ensure that our slate, with all our sin, can be wiped clean. He hangs there to secure our forgiveness before God, enabling us to enter into life with God forever and ever. Another eyewitness to Jesus' death later wrote these words, He that is Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live righteousness 
See, that's why the one who had real authority didn't exert it. For his death is the only way we can die to sin's penalty and power and so live as people declared right with God. Only by the innocent standing in for the guilty can this occur. How amazing. No wonder John Newton in another age wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. The grace that saves a wretch like me. Once I was lost but now I'm found. The great exchange that occurs on that first Good Friday is why we still remember Jesus' death some 2,000 years later. It's why we can confidently announce, thank God, it's Good Friday. Friends, as we meet together on this Good Friday, there's a life-changing challenge each person must face. A challenge asking, have we received God's incredible gift of lasting love? The Good Friday great exchange. The innocent for the guilty. See, today is a terrific opportunity to trust in the one who gives Good Friday its real meaning and significance. To come to grips with why people keep remembering that first century death of Jesus Christ. So how do we take hold of that? Well, it begins, of course, by admitting our rebellion to God, isn't it? To being honest with ourselves. And so seeking to turn from our sin in repentance, recognising we're going the wrong way and need to change. We need to acknowledge that forgiveness and eternal life are only found in Jesus, the one who saves through the great Good Friday exchange. And we need to adhere to Jesus in loving trust and obedience, knowing that our hope for the future is secure. As we ponder those events of that first Good Friday, are we transformed by the triumph of the cross? Or are we simply held in its tragedy and terror. TGIGF. Thank God it's Good Friday. I wonder as you sit there this morning, I wonder if your reflection on Good Friday has reached into your heart. See, today is actually a very good day to make that life-changing come into effect. If you're at a point in your life where that is true for you, you might like to pray this prayer which will come up on the screen, which expresses that desire to take hold of the exchange that Christ has done for us. And so take hold of forgiveness of knowing that our sins are forgiven, the wrongs that we've done in our thought, our words, our deeds, has actually been cleansed and have a hope for the future that not even physical death can destroy.
you're at that point, you might like to pray this with me. So let's just pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for exchanging your life for mine on the cross. Jesus, I admit my sin and turn back to you. I trust in your death alone for my forgiveness and cleansing so that I might be right with the living God for all eternity. Please renew me for a life of loving service in obedience to your word. Amen. Friends, please talk to someone if you indeed prayed that prayer. So God bless. Thank God it's a good Friday.